Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Environmental Social Justice. I'm your host, Wendy Nystrom. Today's special guests are Jesse Mayer and Gabe Watson from the Environmental Policy Innovation Center, or EPIC. But before we talk about why EPIC is EPIC, I want to do a little bit of background about Jesse and Gabe because they have fascinating backgrounds. Jesse is the director of EPIC's technology program, and you actually had a really interesting background of satellite imagery, or, you know, satellites taking pictures from space, and then also into like using that to detect natural resources and um, regional planning for wetlands restoration. Could Jesse, could you tell us real quick what that is so people understand so when we transition over to EPIC, they, they kind of get the full picture? Yeah, happy to, and thanks for having me. Um, so I am a geographer by training, and what I spent a lot of time doing was thinking about if this drop of water fell here, what is it going to come into contact with? And how do you think about the patterns of pollution, stormwater management, and then you can do forecasting into the future for flooding um, and coastal sea level rise and that kind of thing. But whenever I was finished with my graduate studies and I was a, working in an engineering consulting firm, I was doing a lot of that modeling and the data that we had was from people going to the field and saying, this is where wetland is, or they did the mapping of where uh, impervious surfaces were, like streets and buildings. Um, and that data was sometimes 10, 15, 20 years old, because it's the last time that it was mapped. <laughs> and I was like, how am I using 15-year-old data to map 30, 50, 70 years into the future? Like, you can't be forecasting from out-of-date information to start with. And then I learned that there are satellites that have been in orbit for decades and they take pictures on a daily basis, depending on the satellite. Um, and so we have uh, a couple of different satellites that uh, NASA runs that take pictures on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Um, and so I just figured this is a much more up-to-date way of monitoring our natural resources. And because they've been capturing data for so long in the past, you can also see that historical oh, yeah. um, uh, image of what's been going on. So That's um, really cool, especially with flooding. Very important topic as of late. Yeah. Um, and then Gabe, Gabe, you also very fascinating with your data background. Data, data is king in my little world. It is probably the most important thing we have out there to figure out our climate issues we have. And um, you do a lot of um, basically background using web applications and data journalism. So maybe explain to people what data journalism mean, because they're kind of a play in words that most people don't come across. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, there's some good examples sort of in um, the common sphere of data journalism. The New York Times uh, produces a lot of them. So if you see those articles, um, that Mary maps uh, in data with a particular story or a narrative. A lot of them are interactive. Um, they use a term called like scrolly telling. So as you scroll through a web page, different facts might pop up or a, a number gets highlighted or a graph might change to focus in on a particular uh, data element that's then tied to tied to the narrative. So largely data journalism though is is describing the practice of telling an, a narrative or a story uh, alongside the quantitative component. So using things like satellite imagery uh, to tell a story of how a uh, area might have changed due to development. And so it's not just the uh, residents saying that now my neighborhood looks totally different, 
but then also bringing in satellite imagery and saying what was once farmland is now a set of factories and the percentage change in land cover based on that data source. So uh, it's a bit of data journalism, or sorry, a bit of journalism in terms of going out with a pen and paper or a camera and talking to people and um, getting sort of the story in a classical uh, journalistic sense. Um, but then it's going back to the computer and um, making maps or uh, uh, sets of analyses that uh, complement that uh, sort of lived experience or typical journalism perspective. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I, I never put those words together, but now that makes perfect sense when you talk about data journalism and it does make sense. But your focus, actually, you, you talk about a lot about equity, mm -hmm. social justice. So with a show like Environmental Social Justice, obviously this is important to me. So could you explain <laughs> how using all that data to um, support social justice and environmental justice? Yeah, I think um, for the most part, uh, generally, when we talk about issues of uh, uh, environmental hazards, so pollution, for example, or access to environmental goods like uh, uh, tree cover or green space, um, yeah. folks true. who live in these environments uh, often know in their heart of hearts uh, what the problems are and even what the solutions might be. Uh, as it, you know, if we're talking about uh, pollution, for example, um, you go to anyone who's in a fence line community or a community that's sited next to uh, a refinery, for example, um, they'll tell you, you know, on particular days that the air smells really bad. Uh, oh, yeah. Or in the case of water pollution, like my tap water smells, or some of y'all may have seen the video in uh, Pennsylvania of someone being able to light their tap water on fire because it was uh, contaminated with. Um, with petrochemical sources. Um, those lived experience, however, often doesn't necessarily meet the standard um, that our government, uh, whether it's a state, local, or federal agency has in terms of being able to take action. Um, so often it takes uh, data and whether that's, uh, we've seen an increase in cancer rates uh, due to a particular pollutant um, or uh, uh, data on air pollution or PM 2.5, right? So that's uh, particulates which are smaller than 2.5 microns uh, that get into your bloodstream, get into your brain, can cause health effects. Um, folks know that this is their experience of, of headaches and asthma, uh, but it's not till there is a quantitative study undertaken by a government agency or uh, the community working together to collect that data that it able, is able to garner sort of the attention and response that's that's required. So I think data in particular uh, on environmental justice issues is, is really important in terms of sounding that alarm and making the case that um, some action actually needs to be done because people for the most part have been saying that there's problems for quite a while, um, but it's not until there's that, that one chart or that one scientist that sort of has the authority to say the problem is here and now let's do something about it. And the fact that we've known that pollution is bad for decades, many decades, finally coming to light where people are saying, oh, maybe we should look into this. Um, your work is very important. The data and the information collecting is extremely important. So obviously you guys are very passionate about what you do. You have a wealth of knowledge between the two of you as well. What What is EPIC? And, and let's just use it again. What, what makes EPIC EPIC? <laughs> um, I can start and I'm curious, uh, Gabe, what you would add, but um, Epic is a five-year-old nonprofit organization. We are a team of folks like us that are data scientists, engineers, 
but also people that have experience working in local governments all the way to the White House. Um, and we have folks that come with a wide variety of backgrounds to be able to say, we know there are problems here. We don't need to push this rock uphill. And now that it's there, how do we use this background and expertise to actually think about the solution side of things? So we think of ourselves as more of a think-do tank um, and operate a bit like a startup in terms of how do we drive outcomes and how do we find the folks within government agencies? We really passionately want government to work um, and you know find the folks within government agencies that can are excited to make change and can make change um, to deliver on uh, environmental and environmental justice outcomes. Um, I love the fact you mentioned that you're not just talking, you're doing, because I think we're kind of plagued with a lot of meetings and conferences and white papers and da 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 da, da. Yeah. We need to act. So I love the fact you guys are act, pushing forward on the action items. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, being at Epic for, for just over a year now, I mean, first and foremost, I think it's working with uh, smart people who care. <laughs> it's really <laughs> like, it's an awesome place to be. Uh, and, and I think that Epic is well positioned in terms of being able to work with uh, different agencies in terms of kind of being a, a friendly, so to speak, and being able to say, hey, here's how nonprofit is doing. Here's how uh, the corporate world is is tackling these problems. Um, how can we kind of bring government systems sort of into the 21st century uh, and be able to take approaches that have been, you know, well tested and vetted in, in other spaces, uh, but for a variety of reasons, which you know, we might dive into, um, haven't necessarily found a home in government. And yeah, I think it's really refreshing to be at a place where um, sort of those, the ability to take a step back and say, wait, hold on a second, like we're solving problems because of sort of the box that we've been framed into because of our past experiences, how things get done, um, incentives, and yeah. what we just took one step back and said, you know, blank sheet of paper, like how would we solve this problem um, with, with with the resources uh, th that are available? So yeah, it's, it's a really refreshing place to be. And in the past year or so, I think we've made some significant contributions, so. I do love the fact that, um, you know, working with government is hard, working with people in government is hard. They're slow to react. And um, change, is, change is difficult for many people to to handle. And what you guys are doing is you are the catalyst or the spark of change. You are making things happen. You are explaining it simply so people don't get something called analysis paralysis where they get overwhelmed with data and information. They don't even know where to start. Um, would it be possible just to get like maybe one or two examples of current two things you're working on right now so people can get a kind of a framework? Um, yeah, I'm happy to, to start with one that's top of mind and Gabe can maybe take another one. but. Um, one project that we've spent the last three years working on is just who gets drinking water from who. It's a very basic question. That then, yeah, like in the same way that you open your weather app and you're like, in my area, it's sunny today. You should be able to know, is my water safe to drink in my home? And you can't answer the question of whether my water is safe to drink if you don't know where you get your drinking water from. And that's especially a problem for renters, but it's a problem if you maybe you live somewhere, but you're on vacation somewhere or you work there or your children go to a different daycare somewhere else. So how do you have that very that's easy understanding? Information um, yeah, <laughs> where you get your water from. Um, 
So when we started on this project, it was primarily because there was uh, something called the Justice 40 Initiative that wanted mm -hmm. to know, kind of track benefits to communities from infrastructure dollars and saying 40% of that should go towards disadvantaged communities. But we knew, well, we can't track that because we don't know where that money is going and who that is benefiting within that community. So um, we did a data sprint to say, how can we collect all of the information that exists around this topic? Because some states have it, some states don't, and predict who gets drinking water from who with about 80% accuracy is what we were able to get. Um, so that within six months time, we were able to create this data set that hadn't existed before, that multiple people, I would say we talked to 150 different people said, I want that and I need it, both inside and outside of government. Um, since then, we have expanded the number of states that maintain this information. And um, in about two weeks, we're gonna host a workshop, which I'm really excited about, that has 60 folks across EPA, across the Council on Environmental Quality in the White House, mm -hmm. FEMA, US uh, Geological Survey. So there's about, I would say, eight or so different agencies that have an interest in this and maintain different parts of this data set. So we're able to not only um, create it, but then think about what is the process for collaborating across agencies to use this information in their own decision making. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a fun project. That is awesome. Gabe, what are you working on? <laughs> oh, it's hard to pick just one thing. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe we could uh, continue on the service area boundary work because I think if that's happy okay. to, uh, to, to other focus areas. But I think that data set in particular is really important just from an underlying spatial or mapping perspective, right? Where does one water utility end and another one begin? But as we're working to have this uh, convening with, with federal agencies and other partners on sort of that core data set, our data science team is also thinking, how can we leverage that data? So for example, once you have that geography or boundary of what a water utility is, there's a variety of other data sources that you can then bring together um, to be able to get a more comprehensive picture of you know, being able to answer questions like across the United States, are there differences in access to um, quality drinking water based on age, based on race, based on income? Right, so we're able to take demographic statistics that are generated at the census um, and basically merge that service area boundary or utility data with that demographic data to be able to understand the composition of who lives within a particular utility who, a boundary, who's served by the utility, um, as well as then zooming out at a state or national level, are there differences in access based on certain demographic characteristics? But we're also taking it one step further in terms of not just um, the demographic components, but let's look at you know the rates in which a particular utility has health-based violations. Well, what about where's that utility getting their water from? Is there uh, uh, groundwater or uh, aquifer uh, concerns associated with that particular utility? And is that a pattern that you see uh, for uh, many utilities in a particular region, right? So it's being able, the underlying data expands our understanding of the complexity of drinking water issues and kind of takes, we so often hear in, in, in many regions, 
we just don't really know where to start, right? We know that there are drinking water issues. We hear from communities that, like I said earlier, my water smells bad, it tastes bad, right? But it's not until we get those underlying data sets that we're able to have a much better understanding of the scope and scale of the different issues, which then we can lead to uh, prioritizing outreach, funding, et cetera. So uh, it's a slightly different project. It's basically taking those underlying data sets and focusing on a particular region, adding some some community nuance and, and understanding the complexities in, a, in that area. Um, with these national level data sets that we've worked that we've worked to develop. So we're doing that in Oregon and Texas and um, working in a specific region in Texas on specific populations in Oregon. Oh, fantastic. Any work in Flint since they seem to be in the news a lot? <laughs> we haven't had any um, concrete work in Flint, but one of the folks uh, on staff at Epic uh, has worked at the Detroit uh, Water Utility and, and knows um, sort of a lot about the intricacies on, on those problems, which is another fantastic thing about Epic is that you're in a, you know, in a uh, colleague call and you realize that someone's uh, really been around the block and has a lot of expertise to share. Oh, I mean, clearly just from talking with you guys and doing my own research, there, there's a, quite a load of information that you guys have at Epic. I mean, just the quality of people that you have on board working with you guys, it is um, pretty spectacular. Um, but you guys, clearly, you're working on the intersection of government, you're working on policy, you're working on the intersection of environmental and health and quality. Um, so I guess um, my next question is really you work on two different things with, with respect to technology. Um, innovating around how key environmental data is accessed, managed, and built, especially in government. And then the second one, yes, folks, I had to write this down. I don't memorize everything. And improving the capacity of decision makers and communities to leverage data and tech in service, maybe that was teach in service, of environmental stewardship and the tech program overview. Could you explain those those two keys that, um, that were? Yeah. Yeah. Um... It is wonky. And we think about it, one is the people in process and one is the data. So the, what we've just been talking about are data. So what are the data gaps that exist in helping us manage environmental or help us manage the environment? Um, so sometimes it doesn't exist like the service area boundaries or sometimes it exists in PDFs that are like not easy to access. You have to, and we'll talk about that I think on a, on a separate episode. Um, or one agency has it and the other one doesn't have it, or because um, they don't talk to each other very well. We all know this. It blew my mind that like they're all different databases and repositories. Like if I'm working on fisheries and I'm working on endangered species, well, sorry, that was a bad example because there might be endangered species in the ocean. <laughs> let's say there's an endangered species in a forest, the forest part and the oceans part, just their databases don't talk to one another. Yeah. Um, or sometimes the, it exists outside of government, but the government's like, well, we didn't produce that data, so we can't use it. Um, yeah. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about like, how do you facilitate the data sharing across agencies and across inside and outside of government? And then the second part is who are the people within government that can make use of that information? So sometimes, um, especially because we're talking a lot about modernization and innovation and government agencies get set in their ways and they have skill sets that are very strong. But if I'm, we could take the satellite imagery example, um, I would be saying, hey, you could use satellites to help you monitor, but I'm talking to someone that's been working in forestry boots on the ground for the last 50 years. Yeah. And 
it's just a different skill set. And it's not that the skill sets are better or worse. It's just a matter of how do you have this new technology complement the ways in which you've been doing it. And that takes uh, different competencies that we need to see and leadership that says, I want to try something different and I'm open to doing it differently. Um, so we spend a lot of time with the people in government agencies that can be trying to uh, advance the use of technology and data in their work. Um, does that help clarify the two different parts? Oh, no, it does. And trust me, I, I totally understand when you have government agencies that don't talk to each other because they like to do things their way in their department and yeah. the other department wants to do it this way, which is different. And then Gabe, you, you're the expert in data. I'm sure those two databases probably don't talk to each other very well. So you're going to have gaps and holes in your information. And let's go back to utilities such as water. They need to know which communities don't have clean drinking water, who does, who doesn't, where, um, and what is, is it particulate matter? Is it sediment in the water? Is it a bad smell? Is it on fire? These are things that people need to know. And those are the gaps that just from the lack of information and gathering that is a challenge without it, without a doubt. One stat that sticks out to me is that water data in particular is collected by 25 different federal entities across <laughs> 57 data platforms at 462 different types of data. Like I didn't even know it was possible to have that many I didn't different. Think that was possible. <laughs> um, but like it's just it touches everything. Um, but yeah, Gabe, I know you spent a bit of time thinking about that. Also, the ways in which community-based organizations share information with the government as well. Yeah, yeah, I think the the um, water quality exchange portal is a really good example of the intersection of data, federal government, community, procurement, staffing. Um, it's kind of a, a perfect storm. Uh, so the water quality exchange uh, portal or WQX uh, for short uh, is the system that non-federal entities use to submit water quality data. Um, so there are federal entities which collect water quality data, USGS, uh, so the US Geological Society is, uh, or survey I should say, um, is one of the big ones. And so they have measurement uh, devices on streams across the whole country. Um, but I think we've got millions of miles of streams. Um, don't quote me on that one, but it's, it's a lot. Uh, and one federal agency uh, tasked with monitoring, you know, a, a large portion of it, there's a lot of gaps. Um, and so that's where non-federal entities come in. So this, you know, different states have uh, monitoring regimes, uh, tribes have monitoring regimes, as well as um, community science um, groups or, or watershed organizations, as they're often called. My local one, uh, Blue Water Baltimore, is, is, is very active um, in, in the Baltimore region. And so the exercise to be able to get that data that, you know, say a volunteer at Blue Water Baltimore is, you know, in a stream taking dissolved oxygen, you know, how much oxygen is there in the water? How does that person uh, in that organization submit data to reach the federal government? So when the state or federal government is saying, okay, what streams are uh, impaired, which ones um, need to be on what's called a pollution diet um, or a TMDL, a total maximum daily load. <laughs> Some D acronyming there. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> Let's just keep pollution diet. I think that's. Yeah, yeah. pollution diet definitely has a better ring to it. Um, 
that data needs to meet standards, right? Um, working with a lot of community science data um, in, in my my previous role uh, before coming to Epic, the the how it's collected, so the methodology, the frequency, where it's collected. Are you scooping the water up with a bucket, <laughs> or uh, at the surface, or are you dropping that bucket ten feet down to then take a sample? Right. Those. Yeah, it's going to be different data. Exactly. It's going to be different data. So then basically there's a whole exercise to convert that data and standardize it and submit it to the federal government. Right. Um, and I've worked with this system fairly extensively and worked with watershed organizations that are working to suit to, to submit their data. Um, and long and short, sort of the overall review is it's kind of a headache. Um, it's a very cumbersome sort of, you know, uh, typical federal government process, the, the user interface that one sees when they open up the application is um, could use an overhaul. Uh, there's sort of a question like, is there anyone home? Is there anyone behind this? Um, yeah. So I'd worked extensively with the system. Uh, we were writing up a case study from a perspective of, you know, here's what it could look like if you overhaul it. Uh, Canada has a really um, sort of a, a fresher take, so to speak, on that system. The UI is a bit better. Um, it's like a partnership between a nonprofit, the Gordon Foundation, and the Canadian government. So um, case study basically laying out, you know, here are the steps that, that they could take. Wrote it, had a contact who, who uh, worked there and, and was able to put it in front of him. Um, and and the, his first response was just like, we're like three people <laughs> who are working on this entire thing, right? And, you know, the budget is, uh, it was hard to even pin down and get like a, you know, a real number, uh, in, but not enough uh, in short. Um, and so really it's, it was an awakening moment for me in understanding how the amount of resources that the federal government puts towards these public facing data oriented services, um, the implementation of these programs um, often falls short of what the public needs to be able to interact with it in sort of a, a, a full best case scenario. So the result is that a lot of folks um, don't end up submitting their data or they'll submit it to a collaborative, uh, you know, at a regional level. Um, and then that regional level collaborative, manipulates the data, and then submits it on behalf, right? So then you get lag times in reporting, you get uh, issues with data translation and conversion, you get data ownership uh, questions. Um, and I think these regional collaboratives are super helpful and I think are, are a, a necessary entity in the whole conversation. Um, but it sort of describes the situation where um, not enough resources are, are put towards a really important component. The federal government's relying on these non-federal entities for, for data submission. Um, they just couldn't do the evaluation process without it, but haven't sort of thought, what's that user experience and do we have enough resources to support them? Having the resources is important. You, you brought it up at the beginning where you talked about, are you scooping the water out with a bucket from the surface or are you going 10 feet down? Just so people fully understand what you collect at the top of the water is going to be very different than what's at the bottom of the water. So if you guy, if you have one guy at one end of the county scooping it from the top, and another guy at the other end of the county scooping it from the bottom, it's going to be just contaminated. Not contaminated, bad word. The data is going to be inconsistent, mm -hmm. and you need methodologies that are consistent throughout, so everybody gets the same data the same way, and then shares that data because 
you guys aren't just taking data, you're not just helping people understand it, but you're creating policy and structure to help these governments actually fix some of these problems. And I love the word pollution diet, that is really great. No pollution would be fantastic, but we're not there yet. Um, before I let you guys go, I mean, could you explain, you know, you get the data, you get the information, you, you bring it forward, you collaborate with people, you have a huge network. What are some of the policies that you're trying to move forward with? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I know there's probably a lot and it's putting you on the spot and I feel bad about that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, you don't have to put it on the spot. I mean, I think the one of the um, things that I've learned a lot is that I used to think that there were like big P policies saying you're not allowed to do it this way. And sometimes there are. So they would say, I have to go into the field. I'm not allowed to use satellite imagery. And sometimes it's just the practices. It's a built-in practice of we've always done it this way, so we're going to do it that way. And so yeah. um, we actually don't, at least on the tech team, do a ton of like lobbying or policy making. It's just where are there processes that need to be switched? Um, and so I would say that on the, to answer the policy question before I get to this one, um, one of the other teams at Epic that we haven't talked about is uh, really working on speeding up the time that it takes to do restoration. So right now it's faster to build a house than it is to permit a wetland restoration project. So if you're trying to like, not to put it on a diet, but put it on a healthier track, um, yeah. there's policies and ways that you can incentivize and change the structures to actually like make it faster uh, to do the good, do environmental good, then environmental harm. So that's like one example of different policies that we might be looking to address. Um, others, and I'm like, I wish I had a concrete one off the top of my head, but I think the one that I'll go with that's an easy one that's more on a process side of things because it's the Environmental Social Justice Podcast is um, there are more than 40 different environmental justice screening tools that exist at the local, state, and federal level. They have different data. Um, they have different ways that they're calculating environmental justice, which makes sense to some extent, right? Like the problems in Illinois are going to be different than the problem in Texas. So you want to have some variation in how the tools, the data that's behind them. But yeah. one of the process changes that we're looking for is just greater collaboration amongst the ecosystem of environmental justice tool creators, that's a long word, um, so that they're saying, okay, well, you calculate income this way, I calculate income this way. Um, you use this data set for pollution, I use that data set for pollution, and they're yeah. the same for a reason, or they are different for a very explicit reason, so that the public has an easy understanding of what I should be using and why. And federal agencies know um, I'm using the best available information, whether I'm at EPA or Department of uh, Energy or at Health and Human Services. So um, that is one where I don't think we actually need legislation to change it, but we do need a concerted effort in terms of the policies and processes that agencies use in developing and maintaining these tools. And that's vastly important because if you're collecting data differently in different places, one, as you said, why is it being done differently? If there's no need to do it differently, then everybody should be doing it the same. So there's better consistency, which is better end results, yeah. because that is extremely important. Um, before I do the closing, Gabe, did you want to add anything to that? Or Yeah, I, Jesse, I'm really glad you brought up the um, 
the environmental justice tool inventory that we developed. It's a total of like over 40 tools. And uh, I believe we're talking more about that in a, in a later episode, but um, it really started to uncover, uh, we sort of use this analogy, if, if, if you ever seen uh, Price is Right, um, and there's the Plinko game, uh, where the contestant drops a chip uh, at the very top and it bounces down and it finally, you know, leads to, you know, an outcome, so to speak. We kind of use that analogy to talk a bit about the policies and processes that are involved with, take, for example, Justice 40, that 40% of federal expenditures to go to disadvantaged communities, right? That's like where the chip gets tossed in at the top. But yeah. along the way, there are all these pegs, which in, in this analogy are uh, federal memorandums or agency level policy, right? So that are influencing tool development, that are influencing um, administrator guidance. Um, and the end result is not necessarily the one in which, you know, if you put it in at the left, is it going to come out at the bottom left-hand corner? It might kind of... <laughs> Yeah, it bounces around, right? And so, I and then think, it goes where it should have never gone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think that's a helpful analogy in terms of understanding like that the process for, you know, say money, for example, how that flows from, you know, Congress appropriating a, a certain amount of funds to it actually going to a community. It's not a direct line. And there's yeah. such so many different forms of policies and processes which can steer those dollars in different directions, some of them intended and some of them unintended. So it's sort of a complex matrix that really depends on, you know, who's reading the policy, what agency they're at, how they're interpreting it, what are the resources they have to, you know, partner, uh, you know, place that policy or process into context. Um, and like, hey, this deserves a lot of credence, or actually, we don't necessarily do it that way. And we actually look to this piece of paper. But on first glance, they might be equally weighted. Um, so that's a bit just about our philosophy on on how we think it all kind of occurs, because not just a piece of paper saying the money goes here, and that's what happens. And <laughs> that's it. And so many people think that is what happens and it needs to be monitored. It needs to be watched to make sure it goes to the right places. Mm -hmm. um, but before I let you go, how can people find you? Who are you looking to connect with? Um, easiest is our website. So policyinnovation.org. Um, we're also both on LinkedIn. I think that's a really easy place to connect. I would say that again, we love working with people in government agencies that are trying to do things differently, whether you're in local government, uh, state, federal, regional. Um, but then, as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, we have a ton of collaborations with advocates um, across the U.S. and uh, technology providers as well that are doing innovative things. And I think that something that gives me a lot of hope in the environmental space is we actually have a lot of the solutions. We don't have to create a lot of new things. It's just getting those solutions into the right hands. So, um, yeah, I would say that's that's fantastic. And it, just so people caught that, it's policyinnovation.org, O-R-G. Yeah. And you can subscribe to their newsletters and they have updates. Please connect with them on LinkedIn. Um, and then directly, um, I will connect you guys on LinkedIn. You know, they'll, it'll be connected there. Um, but anyone, if who you're interested in learning more, please reach out. Both Gabe and Jesse are, are available on LinkedIn. Um, Gabe, did you want, since since Jesse just spoke, do you want to have any closing comments? Um. I really appreciate the opportunity. I think there's a really important set of issues kind of understanding how 
um, change gets made or the sausage uh, gets made, and it's often not how it seems. Um, and, and I think the, the thing I'll leave uh, with is um, so much of this work when we talk about collaboration and interoperability of data and all these buzzwords, it really starts at relationships. It really yep. starts at folks having a conversation, finding a common set of values and goals, and then going from there. Um, so the the data and the AI and the problem solving is all kind of like second to finding folks who you uh, are aligned with and can develop common ground and then and then work from there. That's excellent. And um, you guys are doing very important work. And yes, we did allude to it. We're going to be doing a lot more of these interviews with Epic because they are doing so many different and diverse things within their organization that we cannot cover it in one, in one session. It's just impossible. There's too much happening. But please, guys, please check them out. It is the Environmental Policy Innovation Center, or EPIC, and it's policyinnovation.org. Reach out to them, connect with them, see how you can get involved, because the more information we collect, the better everyone's lives get. That's just the reality of the situation. So Gabe, Jesse, thank you so much for your time today. I'm very grateful. Thank, thank you, Wendy. Anytime. Guys, I'm Wendy Nystrom, your host with Environmental Social Justice. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Bye.